MuggleCast is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy hosting plans are now more powerful than ever. Best of all, plans start at just $3.95 a month. And no matter what plan you choose, your site receives 24-7 maintenance and protection in the GoDaddy.com world-class data center. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code MUGGLE, that's M-U-G-G-L-E, when you check out, and save an additional 10% on any order. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. Hello, this is David Heyman, and I'm the producer of the Harry Potter films, and this is MuggleCast. Because one Deathly Hallows review show just wasn't enough, this is MuggleCast, episode 215, for November the 24th, 2010. Welcome everyone to MuggleCast episode 215. I know what a lot of you are thinking. You guys don't put out two episodes within four or five days of each other. What is the meaning of this? Um, Well, quite frankly, on episode 214, we made a few mistakes and we wanted to get out a new episode sooner rather than later because um, there was a good, there was a... I don't know if it was a large group of people, but I will say there was a vocal group of people who... um, we're disappointed in um, some mistakes that we made on the last episode. So we wanted to get this new episode out to let you guys know we don't take the mistakes lightly. We we appreciate that you guys are so passionate about it. And you guys rely on us for, for accurate information in a timely manner. And we got the timely part right, but we, <laughs> we didn't get the accurate part right. <laughs> so we, we promised a part two to our part one discussion anyway, and yes. while it's all fresh on our minds... Da, 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 da. Yes. So, yeah. uh, and I do also have to say, episode 214, we got a lot of downloads very quickly, so that also motivated us to get another episode out to you guys as soon as possible. So we have quite a few things to address and Matt's joining us this time, and he has a more positive take on the film, right? Yes, most definitely. Do you promise? I, I well, promise. Andrew, why don't you tell him the truth? At the, at the beginning of 214, when we sat down to record, you said, Micah, you need to be more critical of this film. And, and, that, and that's the reason why, on episode 214, I was so critical of the film. We have a lot to address this week, so let's get started. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Micah Tannenbaum. I'm Matt Britton. And I'm Richard Reed. news this week. This is a purely rebuttal sort of episode, and uh, really there hasn't been much news other than, I guess we should mention quickly, um, ticket sales. The movie made $300 million worldwide over opening weekend, which shattered the previous opening weekend record set by Goblet of Fire. And um, it should be taking over the box office this upcoming weekend as well, so... 
I don't know. Tangled's coming out this week. <laughs> yeah, I think Harry Potter will. There's already article. It's funny. There's already articles out saying like Harry Potter set to rule the weekend box office, Thanksgiving weekend box yeah, office. Yeah, I think it'll do pretty well just for that reason in and of itself is that kids are off, whereas last weekend, you know, at least this is an extended period of time where they can go see the film. Yeah, exactly. That was interesting because they were comparing the gross of Deathly Hallows to the opening weekend gross of, what was it, uh, Movie 3 or one of the other movie successful four. ones that had happened in the movie. Well, Movie 4 was also in November, but I guess the difference was the kids were off school, and so they thought that maybe Deathly Hallows, I mean, it did amazingly, what, $125 million opening weekend domestic? So it did great, but they thought it might do even better if kids had been off school. Anyway, let's let's get into part two of our part one Deathly Hallows discussion. Uh, three big things we want to start out with. These are three things we talked about last week that we were incorrect about. The, the first one, and I got to say, I don't know if we've ever gotten so much feedback about a particular Hundreds episode. Hundreds of emails, literally. But that's, that's great, by the way. We're not complaining. We really appreciate that you guys do write in, and we do read all the emails. Um, but the, the most emailed thing uh the most emailed topic we received was concerning the hair that fell on Hermione mm-hmm. and we did not well uh, some people did not know what it was honestly i hadn't even seen it in the film so i just saw the close up of Hermione i didn't actually see the hair um and i think eric you're you're sticking by that same excuse too right well, no, no. I I saw it and I questioned what it was, but I didn't. I legitimately didn't remember where it would come into play. I, I just wasn't sure what the scene was setting up because the switchover happened so quickly, and to see this hair falling through the air, I I just didn't make the connection. So it turns out, if I can take this away from you, Andrew, that the hair is obviously um, very significant because in part two, in the film part two, and later in the book after Malfoy Manor, Hermione needs the hair, which is Bellatrix's hair, to polyjuice herself into Bellatrix so that they can invade Gringotts. Obviously, huge, huge, huge plot point right there is this hair, which in the film is just kind of, you know, the camera shows Hermione laying, and the hair gently falls on her and I rewatched the film last night after all of this feedback that we got for the show and it's in the scene where specifically Bellatrix is torturing the goblin she she's cutting him up and interrogating him and we don't see how close Bellatrix is to Hermione but we're meant to believe I guess from the positioning that Bellatrix is right like outside the camera frame so that her hair just fell off of Bellatrix and is flowing down to Hermione. It's really odd because never is it really set up that that is actually Bellatrix's hair um, or never is it actually shown that. We're just meant to believe that she's like right next to where Hermione is laying. So it is really confusing to be fair, but there's no excuse for my mistake, which is that I don't know where the hair came into play. Andrew legitimately didn't see it. Eric, also what I thought was really cool that Helena Bonham Carter did during the the entire film, basically, is just keep blowing the hair out of her face. It, it, show, it showed oh, how that's where it like was like, hints at. It's like how it's all yeah. over the place, basically, because she keeps she keeps spitting basically the hair out of her mouth. <laughs> so you're saying like kind of like Barty Crouch Jr. in movie four, where they had that that tongue thing so that you could recognize it. Yeah, well, so you uh, keep your attention to her hair basically because you know it's. <laughs> It's going to start falling off pretty soon. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. So we'll see that in part two. Uh, I presumably Harry and Ron will be like, we need Bellatrix's hair. And Hermione will be like, oh, yeah, remember uh, at the end of part one, I totally got one of her hairs. When <laughs> I it totally got to one. fall on me. 
<laughs> well, her eyes are like, she's crying, but her eyes are slightly open. She kind of pays attention to... See, that's to... what distracted me, was her crying. I was focused on her eyes. I wasn't even watching what was going on with the hair. But anyway, <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, big thing number one. Number two, and this one was <laughs> this one was my mistake, the reading of the three brothers. I said on episode 214 that the reading of the three brothers was done by Ollivander in the book. That's not true. It's still done by Hermione. What had confused me about that was the preview trailer for parts one and two, where we see Ollivander talking to the trio, saying something about, there's only three, or something like that. That comes into play in part two somehow, but that's what confused me in terms of who's telling the story. But yes, everyone who emailed in was absolutely right about that. Yeah, he says it's rumored there are three. It's rumored there are three. Okay. Um, so that's what confused me there. And finally, the Grigorovich Grindelwald slip-up was number three of the three big things we screwed up. And, Micah, can you address this one? Yeah, so I was going through the, the Deathly Hallows subplot, and I, I started by talking about Grigorovich, and I, I think it was just so fast-paced when I was talking that I slipped up and I said that Grigorovich was the one that was in the prison when Voldemort comes and uh, tries to get the memory from him. In fact, it's Grindelwald, but uh, that led to Eric making a comment, I think, that he wanted to address as well. Yeah, I made the comment that the actor portraying Grigorovich must have read the Harry Potter books because he portrayed Grigorovich as, as, as if he were um, a gay character. And, and, and not only was this comment, I think, inappropriate, I was, of course, speaking of Grindelwald, um, whose relationship with Dumbledore was outed, you know, canonically by J.K. Rowling later. But I think everything from the comment, you know, every, you know, sometimes I, I can imagine the listeners of this show have these moments where they're listening to us talk and they're like, well, what did he even say there? What was he thinking? And <laughs> this is one of those moments where I caught it long before any emails sent in. Honestly, I think people held back on the emails because I was, I was nice to the film uh, in that discussion. <laughs> but I have to say, when I was listening to myself talk, not only did I, I realize, you know, we'd confused Grigorovich with Grindelwald, but I, I just don't know what I was thinking. I really do apologize. Like, it was it's an appropriate okay, comment to make anyway. So I just want to say that that, that whole thing, I just, if I could erase it, I would. But uh, but I can't, so I do apologize. It's all right. It's all right. Um, <laughs> so those are three big things we wanted to clear up. We have we still have lots of emails we're going to get to today, and we'll be talking about all of them. Little things in the movie, uh, things you guys didn't like or you did like. So Matt, uh, since you were not on the show last week, we want to get your review, your short review of the film, and uh, we can discuss a couple of the things that you bring up. And you you are pretty positive about it, right? Yes, basically. Like Andrew just said, I thought the movie was amazing. I thought it was complete. I was basically floored after the first time I saw it. And I think uh, mainly the reason why I like the movie so much is because I think I felt the same emotions that I did when I read the book that when I saw the movie. Because usually when I watch the movies, I don't really have the same feelings that I felt when I read the books, which in Deathly Hallows Part 1 is not the case. I was very, extremely impressed with the acting. Like you guys said in the last episode, I thought my favorite actor of uh, actually was Rupert. Um, Emma did a lot of great scenes, but I feel like Rupert stole a show for me. I thought the music was a lot better than what I listened to from the soundtrack. I think it, it fit a lot better than it does by itself. The first time I saw it though, 
I basically forgot 10 minutes of the movie after Hedwig died because I was just floored by what they did. Um, Hedwig's death was so, 10 times better in the movie than it was in the books. Oh, thank God. Because, so you're saying you forgot because it was awesome, right? Yeah, <laughs> I was basically like, oh my God, the movie's still going. Because what they did with Hedwig was they gave her a noble death. In this case, she, she saved her boy, basically. She was protecting Harry, the one that she loved. And I thought that was just the icing on the cake. Unfortunately, you know, we couldn't go find the damn bird and bury her, but that was, I don't know, <laughs> you can't do that when Voldemort's chasing you. And, um, let's see, some, some of the other things that I really liked. I, I really, I, I honestly, you guys may disagree with me, but I really love the pacing of the film. Because yeah. it is, we gotta understand, it's half of a full movie. This is only part one. So even if the road movie was half of part one, that's still a quarter of this entire story. And I think, because when I read the books, I thought it was slow pace anyways. Because that's what it exactly is. It's months and months of traveling. And they have to, they have to condense that in a two and a half hour film. Because half of the entire story is them just looking for horcruxes, which they have no idea how the hell they're going to do it. So I think they, they portrayed what the feeling was. And if they even shortened it, because a lot of people do say this about how it drags. Even a lot of the, the critics say this about how the, the, the quote unquote on the road part of the film where they look f- to destroy the horcruxes is slow. Well, also Ron is getting very upset about it taking forever. And I think if they shortened it at any way in the movie, it wouldn't have come across uh, the emotion that Ron had to give for him to leave. Yeah. The point I was going to agree with was that, you know, in, in the last show, obviously, um, you know, I said some things about the pacing of the film and even some of the, the subplots that were going on, whether it was the Horcruxes or the Hallows or, you know, backstory on Dumbledore. And, and I think you brought up a good point, something that, you know, I didn't really think about in the sense of it being a two part film and that a lot of those things have payoff in part two that you know, you're just obviously not going to get for that very reason in part one because there's still three hours left to go. And right. I think well, that that's yes. really where I made some missteps. Well, no, I mean, honestly, Mike, I wasn't even like thinking about what you guys mostly said in the last episode because I've been reading so many reviews on it, and a lot, and, and a lot of it had to do with how like there was no cliffhanger at the end, basically, which. I mean, they would have to create a cliffhanger, basically, because, you know, they're going off of a book. And uh, how slow it was. But really, if 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 they try to make it all action-packed, it's if you see part one and part two in its entirely, entirety, you're going to get so bored by the time the big battle hits at Hogwarts that it's just... It's, it's, it's gonna be so boring, um, up to that point. Because you're gonna be seeing two and a half hours of action, and then you're gonna be seeing another two and a half hours of action too. And no offense to American audiences, but we're very fickle with that. We can only stand a few minutes of action, and then we're gonna be tuning off. Now, what did you think, though, of, of that, um, the, the point where the movie did leave off? It, did you, th- were you satisfied with it? Did you guys touch on this? I don't think you did. No, we did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, um, no, I loved it. I absolutely loved it because I because well, I was it a cliffhanger? Didn't you just say it wasn't a cliffhanger? I say well, I I think it was a cliffhanger. The last time I saw it, which was like the fourth time, the last movie I saw, the girl next to me starts swearing. <laughs> like what? what the hell? My dad worst swore. ending ever. How am I going to wait? My dad the next swore. Film? I saw it with my dad last night. 
uh, and 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 at the end of the movie, he swore loudly and he said, uh, "What a place to end it!" And he was laughing, of course. And I think it was kind of bold because cl- you know, clear. I mean, Dobby's just died. We have this emotional low, but then Voldemort gets the Elder Wand, and it's such a position of power for the villain to be in when the film ends. So I, I think maybe it came across as bold to some people, but I definitely agree it was a worthwhile ending. I don't think that there was any point. They should yeah, have done better. I mean, it's it's really hard to create a cliffhanger from a pre-existing book. I thought it was a good cliffhanger, though. And Micah last week addressed, he said he didn't really feel it. And I think we only didn't feel it because we knew what the cliffhanger was going to be. So it was it, it, it came across as predictable to us. Um, <clears throat> and right, like Matt said, you do have to go with the book. So you do have to create a cinematic cliffhanger off of the story. I mean, and, you know, if if they created a new scene, that would have caused even more trouble. Um, so I think it was a good idea to leave it when Voldemort takes control of the Elder, Elder Wand. If you haven't read the books, if you haven't been spoiled with where the split would be made, then I think it was a good cliffhanger. And I do remember a specific email from someone who said um, their their whole audience, theater audience, went, ah, like after, <laughs> after Voldemort got the wand. Well, it's the light. Well, not only is it a, is it a, a good cliffhanger, but, I mean, it's, it, you, you really, it's really subjective on what defines a cliffhanger. But I think it's the perfect place. Well, he was kind of on a cliff, right? So uh-huh. that sort of helped, too. Uh, he was on an island. Oh, okay. He, well, he was on the cliff of the uh, the grave, so we can just say that. <laughs> right. But it's also the perfect p- point in the story where it kind of transitions over to the other half of the film, too. Well, that's that's the other thing, is I noticed this last night while watching the film, that the first film really is a lot about the Elder Wand. And it's, it's because in the beginning of the film, Voldemort has this scene, and I, I hadn't forgotten this scene last week's episode, um... But I did I did notice this more last night. Voldemort actually sets his wand down on the table at Malfoy Manor when he goes to grab Lucius's. And he has this this dialogue in the beginning of the film about how his wand and Harry's can't uh can't face each other. Right, they're twins. And so if you're a stranger to this film, which is the the kind of you know, I tried to put myself in the shoes of a stranger last night to judge things Don't like do it. pace. To ju- no, to judge things like pace in the <laughs> film. Don't warn me, Mike. I know you got all the hate mail. I'm sorry. But to judge things like pace, I tried to p- put myself in those shoes. So taking in Voldemort's dialogue in the beginning of the film about him not being able to face Harry with his wand, it makes sense that he takes Lucius's. And then, of course, when at the Seven Potters scene, uh, Voldemort loses a wand. A few scenes later, Harry has this memory vision of Voldemort being very upset with Ollivander. Da, 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 da. It goes on and on in the story, and... Harry later develops that, you know, we're going to get the wand, the story of the three brothers we find out about, the unbeatable wand. The end of the film has Voldemort. He has attained the Elder Wand. So it's really this film, I I think it makes continual sense, and I think that it actually makes sense or would make sense to non-viewers because I was shocked at how many little scenes there were that really emphasized that Voldemort is looking for this unbeatable wand. So I thought it was fine. Richard, as someone who gave the film a 3 out of 10... Were you satisfied with the cliffhanger? Yeah, I mean, I again, like I said last week, I was still a little disappointed with the way the ending. Well, it's not where I would have ended the film, put it like that. But I guess that when I was originally writing my review just after the film, you have to remember that it is only part one of a two-part film, as Matt said earlier. So, although I'm critical, I kind of, 
I'm almost trying to say, well, look, I'll hold off till I see the next film before I decide. Um, it was, it was relatively, it was okay, I guess. I mean, it wasn't brilliant, but it did the job. So now, Richard, you, you said you would, you would end the film while they got snatched, right? Be- prior to the Malfoy Manor scene? Yeah, yeah, right. Oh. And, and so what, what would you have, what would you do, what, what would that effect achieve? Like, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, I'd originally consider that to be a good spot because then both the first film and the second film could start off at Malfoy Manor. But that was really, in the end, the only rewarding thing I thought about it, to have that continuity between the two films. I just, well, I think that the tension from building up from being chased by the Snatchers from being caught, I think that would have been much more profound than, because since I found Dobby's death such a letdown, that I think that the tension from the Snatchers would have been more interesting to watch as as a cliffhanger. I think the problem with the Snatchers is they weren't that powerful. You know, I they think they comical. needed that. Right. They, they needed that ending shot to be Voldemort because, you know, it's, it's, it's Harry versus Voldemort. You know, Snatchers are like, ah, who cares? It's Snatchers. And yes, he's bring, being brought back to Malfoy Manor. I mean, <clears throat> maybe a good cliffhanger is like, uh, Malfoy being right about to call Voldemort or something like that. They could still use Voldemort for the end of it. The bit I didn't really like was the Malfoy Manor scene. Cause remember that in the books, uh, unless I'm wrong, the the Voldemort when he takes the one from Dumbledore's grave it comes well after the Malfoy Minor scene. Well, so they moved that forward anyway. So I mean, they could do that. They could still do that if they were being caught by the Snatchers. Let's get to some emails now. We got lots of them from several listeners. This first one is from Ian, 19 of Massachusetts, and he writes: In your review of Deathly Hallows Part One in Episode 214, you mentioned that Bill Weasley was the one to announce the death of Mad Eye and how odd it was that he should be the one to do so. I realize that Bill is played by Dom Hall Gleason, the son of Brendan Gleason, who plays Mad Eye. Do you think that this casting choice affected the script in any way, specifically as an inside reference to the actors? <laughs> so did is Bill Weasley the one who mentions Mad Eye's death because it's mentions. played by his Yeah, he's his son. Does he get the uh, line? I think uh, well, at the least, it's a coincidence. I don't think that would have been intentional. I think the the interesting thing is, like, David Thewlis wanted his wife to play the role of Tonks, you know, his real-life wife to play the role of Tonks. Do you think that, you know, it's kind of like asking the question, do you think that that would play up, Would have, they would have played up Remus and Tonks in the films if, you know, Thewlis's wife had been cast in the role of Tonks? Uh, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't, I don't think I, so. I think, I think the... No. You know, in every interview we've had with Heyman and Yates, and they say the respect is to the form and the content, you know, and not and and then less to any of those out, you know, otherworldly things. Well, I think it goes back to the point you made last week, and even though I, I had disagreed with it, I, I think you know wh- how you mentioned that what's going on is larger than just sort of this smaller group of people that we've come to know throughout the course of the films. Here's Bill Weasley who obviously is introduced in the books very early on, but isn't introduced in the movies until right now, and yet he has all this knowledge about what's going on with all these different people that we've come to know. And so it it was kind of a nod to the greater danger that's being... Uh, you know, being presented to, to this group of characters that hear somebody who we've never met before saying that Mad Eye Moody is now dead. Well, Bill and does say Mad Eye's dead in the book. So it all, it also happens to be canon. It, ha- it also happens to be exactly what happens in the book. <laughs> is it? Are you absolutely sure about yeah, that? Yeah, I'm actually on the page right now. That's why I was quiet for a bit. Wow. What, what page is it? It's, uh, page 78 of the, uh, U.S. edition. The very time. Right, I'm double checking because this is a error free episode of Mother <laughs> But I do think with that point that Eric brought up last show is you know, fair. Yeah. Um I would like to c- 
confirm as well that Bill Weasley does say that in the book. He is the one that reveals it. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. So that was a gr- it was a good theory though for me in any way. I mean, you know, maybe maybe that's why they cast him anyway because they were like, well, Bill's going to announce. Bill Bill's going to announce it. So let's get uh, who better than let's his son. Get, Right. Seeing it last night again, the the seven potters scene when they when they have that car chase, they're they're on the road. I love seeing the the Death Eaters casting the spells at the the traffic. Oh and yeah. Like part, parts of cars falling off. Like again, another one of those scenes that I think the first time I saw it just kind of went by. I wasn't thinking about it, but it's actually kind of cool seeing how all those spells are like affecting the cars yeah. and like to where know, like Hagrid. The- I don't I don't know where he learned to drive, but. Well, he throughout the entire job. series, you know, like, uh, the, the wizards and the muggles, you know, that they, they keep to themselves, they don't really cross over worlds, but in this time, they just don't care. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, what a clash between titans. The, the other thing that I noticed, too, is that, uh, in, in the film, Harry uses Hedwig as the reason why Voldemort knows yes. who he really is, as opposed to Expelliarmus. I thought that was a brilliant, I thought it was good. to kind of transition it. Yeah. And it just made me even cry more because Hedwig's dead. Well, maybe the ministry has her, you know, because they found Moody, or his eye at least, and put it up on a door. Maybe they have Well, the I'm bird. expecting maybe in the they're... epilogue that Hedwig comes flying back and then sits on, perches on his shoulder, and then everything's I okay. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> you don't know that, Eric. Eric. You haven't seen part two yet. In the movie, there was no reference to them about going to get Moody's body, though, was there? No. So they completely omitted that. Well, they can't. They can't really. The the world. It's we're meant to believe the world is too dangerous. I mean, soon enough, the ministry has his eye nailed to the door. So it's 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 fine though because you know if if they, if they can find Moody's body, then they can sure as hell find a bird on the floor. I'm sure they have it on display in some museum. This is Harry Potter's bird. I'm sorry, Matt. They're, you're gonna have to pay to go see right, it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to email J.K. Speaking of Moody, Timber Twenty Eight of the USA. Writes, I believe the commentators mistakenly say that Harry did not take Mad-Eye's eye from Umbridge's office door. I was specifically looking for that, and I think he did. I think in that brief second when Harry, disguised with Polyjuice, walks away from Umbridge's office, that the eye is missing. Later on in the forest, there's a scene where we can see Hermione in the background kneeling at the foot of a huge tree with a bunch of wildflowers in her hand. I believe this was the movie maker's allusion to the burial of Mad-Eye's eye in the forest. However... Or anyhow, when you see the movie again, as I know we all will, let's watch and make sure it's missing when Harry walks away from the office. I think the movie makers did include this point. Can anyone verify this? I, I didn't. I totally forgot about that part. I mean, it wasn't even that important to me about no, Mad-Eye's the, eye. I the only more- thing I can, yeah, the only thing I can verify is that if that's included in the film, word the attention is not drawn to it. It For, is not because it's, it's a wide shot. It's, it's a wide. It's shot. a wide shot. Both both are wide shots. The one of Hermione with with her, you know, flowers in her hand, and you know, the one where where Runcorn walks away. I I don't. Wow, that's that's going to have to be a Blu-ray zoom in for me like <laughs> yeah. I, I can't i can't do that in yeah the film. i mean i know i brought this up in the last episode so uh, i mean if it is in fact missing from the door then obviously i'll not have anything we'll to keep an eye say out. about it but S- still shame on them for now definitely you know. next time when i go and see it i'll uh i'll take a look i know we all if- will that would be a really nice little homage to the fans though because i mean it's not in any way you know intricate to the plot in any shape or form but if they like just put, put that very subtly in j- just for a fan to go so they must so she must be bearing the eye right there F- fans shouldn't have to do that 
Yeah. You you should either you should either be completely set. You know what I'm saying? Like they need to spell it out for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next email comes from Brianna, 18 of Omaha, Nebraska. She writes about Dobby's speech. Hey guys, I've been a long time listener. I love the show. I just wanted to make a comment about Dobby's speech scene in Deathly Hallows. I really hated that particular scene. I thought Dobby's speech was too comedic, especially because his death was only 30 seconds away. I know at my midnight showing, the whole audience was laughing. I thought that they, the writers, ruined what should have been a very dark moment. I, too, agreed that movie Dobby was not developed enough to give such a strong and empowering speech. Anyway, love the rest of the movie, and thanks for the awesome podcast. It's it's funny that she emailed this in, because I did a review with AOL Movie Phone, and links on MuggleNet, by the way, if you want to watch it, and one of the people on the panel said the same exact thing, that in his theater, everyone was laughing. Yeah. I can see that, how that would ruin. Right. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I agree. It must ruin it, but... For me, I thought that was a very empowering moment when you see Dobby standing up there. He's standing above the trio and everyone mm-hmm. else uh, standing around him. And I thought that was the moment, the moment to build up the, the, the love for Dobby. Right. So that when he's killed just 30 seconds later, it, everybody feels bad for him. They needed that scene because yes, he was nowhere to be found in, in the past few movies. So they needed that kind of thing to make you feel with him. And by, by the way, just in, in my audience, um, everyone was cheering, applauding, not laughing. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, jeez, you guys got some cynical audiences. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can I just talk about Dobby's death because I haven't been mm-hmm. able to yet? Um, I loved it. Okay. So, uh, so to go into it more, what I I do hear that a lot about Dobby's speech, and Mike and I, you and I, were talking about how cheesy it was. Because every Harry Potter movie needs a cheesy line. And unfortunately, Dobby got it in this movie. That was not cheesy. Are you kidding me? That was not cheesy. Uh, but I do think that it was completely appropriate for Dobby to say that. Because Dobby's character, he is, there is no cynicism. There is no sarcasm. There is Innocence. no sense of anything in Dobby's character. Dobby is completely, uh, uh, yeah, he's completely innocent. He's an innocent soul. He's, Honest, there is there is no way for Dobby to lie. He even says how he wanted to hurt Bellatrix. He didn't want to kill her. He only wanted to main or f- so. I can see how like an audience member can see this as like you know a comedic, not really touching moment. But it would be completely out of Dobby's character to say anything profound. I mean, n- not not that what he said wasn't profound, but like very dramatic, almost like an Oscar moment sort of. Sp- thing but it's because that Dobby is just a pure soul that there's no not an ounce of anything negative or uh, you, you know what I'm talking about Be- D- Dobby just cannot say things in a manner that's insulting I want to say that um, one of the things that got me thinking about this when I saw the film last night was um, what Micah said last week about uh, movie two being a death fest. And I thought about this when I was watching the film, particularly when, you know, when it comes to Dobby. Um, I noticed two things. One, I think Dobby has the best lines in this film. You know, can you, can you know, can you get us out of here, Dobby? Of course, sir, I'm an elf. That you was know? hilarious. It, it's, it's, but it's wonderful. And the fact that he dies, and I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but Hedwig, obviously, they changed Hedwig's death so that she sacrifices herself for Harry in the beginning of the film. Happens off screen, same with Moody. Um, but, when it comes to Dobby's death at the end of the film, we're at such a point where, the film audience sees how 
a completely innocent character has completely on screen sacrificed himself for Harry. And I think that's a great moment for the film to, to be at. It's a great point for the film to be at because come part two, we're going to actually see a lot of people on screen giving their lives for Harry. And I think it, Dobby was kind of the, the intro to that kind of behavior. Uh, in, in people sacrificing themselves for Harry on screen, because up until this point, even in previous films, with the exception of maybe Cedric Diggory, we heard about Lily Potter, you know, sacrificing herself for her son, more or less happened off screen. We've never seen it before. And so to do it with Dobby, to do it with such a pure soul, and to build it up the way they did, giving him these, these innocent lines and this, that moment of triumph where he's like, you know, I am, you know, he's my friend, that, that was really important, I think, because yeah. come part two, they're going to need to. A lot of people are going to be dying for Harry, and otherwise, we wouldn't know how to take that if we if we haven't been prepped by David Yates with Dobby. Can, can I just say one thing about this though? And and obviously, she's responding mostly to what I said in the last episode. I, I do think still that that there is a comedic touch to Dobby's speech, and yeah, that is part of his personality. But I just don't think that that set up his death very well. I and, still cried every single time I've seen it, though. And maybe it's just that I need to go and, and see the movie again. And you I'll should come have see it with me, Michael. Perspective. <laughs> Matt is, is convinced to to make me cry and to uh, you know. He's gonna give you a big old hug, a big old Matt hug. When no, I'm gonna sl- I want to slip. I want to put some like vapor rub under your eyes or something. <laughs> but w- w- what did you think about his speech to Harry right before he dies? Oh, I, I like that scene. I did like that. Was scene. that funny? Did anyone laugh no. at that? Yeah, <laughs> good. I just thought the setup wasn't wasn't good. That that's my my criticism of it. It just the setup of it wasn't good. And I'll well, leave it at that. I'll tell you guys why it connected with audiences. Dobby's been trending on Twitter since the movie came out. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, what was that about? I mean, you know, sure. I don't think the world's in agreement that Dobby was like should win a, an Academy Award for best actor <laughs> in a film, but I think it did connect with audiences when when it started trending. I think it was a surprise to a lot of people who haven't read the books, and uh, I think people did connect with them. I did. Seems like Matt did, uh, and probably some others. Richard, what do you think? You, are, you, did, were you moved by his speech or anything at all? Uh, in the books, this was actually the only moment of the series that, that made me cry. It was the scene when, you know, when Dobby died. Um, my problem with this was more at an artificial level. And I like the story and I like the dialogue. But as I said last week, I just felt the CGI was, you know, kind of so poor that I struggled to take the entire scene seriously. And as a result, I felt a little bit let down by it. I mean, it was almost so so cartoony, and at the same time, he was giving this great, passionate speech, almost like the freedom moment from Braveheart. But I just kind of felt I lacked the believability, and I think that was down to the CGI. Richard, did you le- did you laugh earlier in the film when Dobby is pushing Creature out of the way so that Dobby can be the one to tell the story of how they found Mandungus? Did you fi- did you were you moved at all by that? Did you feel it was unnecessary? In the film? In the film. Um, I wasn't particularly moved by it, I don't think. I mean, it was nice to see Dobby's character back again, finally, after such a long absence. I mean, he's a really, truly wonderful role in the books, and I kind of missed him in the movie series as a whole, but I don't think the scene with the creature was particularly thought-provoking. I mean, don't get me wrong, the lines were good, and they, you know, they were delivered well. I liked the speeches on the whole, but like I said, I'm just, just not sure I believed it as a film goer. I think most people would probably be more receptive to Dobby's performance if we, if, if 
we had seen him sooner than you know 2002. If if the audience <laughs> or that fell brief in love cameo with... in Goblin well, of it's Fire. St- it's still been it's still been what two or three years since movie six, and y- y- there was no place for him in movie six because he wasn't following Malfoy around. Malfoy was going it alone, so there was no. I mean, they could have made a place for him, I suppose, but it's still been years since that movie came out, and unless he's, like, on promo posters next to Harry and all the posters, I don't think anybody would really remember him. I mean... He had his own character poster, though. Yeah, no, he did in this film, didn't <laughs> well, he? Don't yeah. you remember, I brought that up even before the film came out, and I said, you know, look at what they did with Fenrir Greyback in, in Half-Blood Prince, and they didn't even really make an introduction to his character and here's Dobby who hasn't been around since Chamber of Secrets and they're using promotional posters of him so uh, again I'm not here's the thing from last episode if I can just take like 30 seconds because yes, closing point please. because I got a lot of the, the most feedback that I got was the, the comment that I made about the casual moviegoer and I listened back to this episode and I have to say I use the casual moviegoer argument way too much. And and I'll, con- I'll concede <laughs> that. No, I said in the comments. And in all honesty, when I said casual moviegoer, I was really referring to some of the issues that I myself had with the film. Whether it was the Dursleys, whether it was Dobby's speech, whether it was you know the Hallows storyline. But these are things that other people had issues with as well. And you know I still feel... As I said in the last episode, and I think it kind of got lost with a lot of the criticism, I do think this was the best book-to-film adaptation that we've had. And I think you can still like a movie and be critical of it. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and another thing that I wanted to bring up is that some people were saying, you know, we were being too negative, weren't bringing up too many positives. I should have brought this up at the beginning of the show, but I'm bringing it up now. The fact of the matter is, if we were to be completely positive about a film, it wouldn't be Real? a good. it wouldn't be a good episode. Well, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be representative of the whole fan base. I mean, I, I right. thought it was, you know, I was stunned because you had withheld from me that we were in such disagreement from the film, Andrew. I feel like I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> um, because when it turned out we all had different opinions, I was excited, genuinely excited. It's not only a change of pace for me, it's got to surely be a change of pace for listeners, you know, who listen to us weekly. And, yeah, that's and, true. And we that's tend true. to agree on a lot of stuff. So the fact that we right. didn't, I think, made for a more interesting episode. I, I mean, if we can... But yeah... We needed to be critical. It couldn't be an all-rave show. Yes, this is a fan podcast, but, you know, an hour and a half of us going, oh, my God, I love that. Oh, me too, me too. That's just not good. And and the thing is, the the thing is, the same people, the same people who wrote in and said that we were too critical would write in and say we weren't critical enough. We can't win. (laughs) Yeah, we can't win. I think Matt and I are talking about Dobby. Well, yeah, and also, I think a lot of the listeners, when they say you guys are being too critical, they meant you guys are being too negative. To where they wanted you maybe, to be more maybe. positive. I don't. I, I. 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 seriously don't think you guys were too critical because basically that's exactly what this podcast is for. Is you guys are critiquing everything. You guys. We, we analyze the books and we critique the movies. That's what the fan podcasts do. Someone left a comment on MuggleNet um, on on the actual site saying that you know maybe Micah and myself should see the film again and might look at it in a different light. And I'm definitely going to do that because I think. On a second viewing, which I haven't had time to do yet, I would probably enjoy it more than I did the first time. That initial shock of saying, all right, all my favorite scenes may not have made it in, then, okay, I can accept that, and then I can look at, well, you know, the rest of the film as a whole wasn't that bad. Okay, let's now get to the next email. Brittany, 25, of Colorado. She wrote in a very long email. We're just going to read a couple of the things that she had to say. 
Hey guys, um, on the discussion about Deathly Hallows uh, on episode 214, thank you, Mike and Richard, for saying exactly what I felt. I was so excited about this release. I enjoyed it, but I have to say that I cannot imagine how anyone who has not read the books is going to have a clue what is going on or feel the same sense of urgency J.K.R. creates in the books. I thought the, thir- the first 30 minutes or so of the film was excellent. I was completely sucked in and excited for what was to come. But somewhere after the wedding scene is where the disconnect started. I was never emotionally drawn into the movie. Instead, it felt more like I was watching these really great and sometimes epic scenes without really knowing why they were so important. I know it's difficult to make all the pieces fit together when the general audience doesn't have all the backstory, but as someone who loves and has read the series, I still wasn't happy. Something was definitely off, and I'm not afraid to say it has me concerned about what will take place in movie eight. Overall, I'd say a five out of ten. Thanks again, and keep that's, up the good that's work. That's more generous than Richard's three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did she say anything on why? Was there any specifics about this? Because well, I we think she's really responding review. to a lot of the stuff that Mike and Richard were saying last week yeah. concerning concerning the the purpose, right, Mike? And as far as far as the disconnect that she talks about, kind of after the the wedding. I really think that you know, one scene that they could have included that might have helped people understand uh, more of the, the going at it alone and, and the need to do that would have been Lupin showing up at Grimold Place. Yes. You'd get more of a feeling you know, at, at watching the movie that, okay, this is why Harry feels that they need to go off and do this on their own. And I think that leaving a lot of people actually wrote in about that scene and they were upset that it wasn't in the film. All right. I was just, I'm mainly, I was mainly upset they didn't include that because all you see in Lupin in this entire film is him screaming at Harry. Well, that's important though too because he does it twice. First is the time when he pulls Harry aside to make sure that he's the real Harry. And immediately following that, him and Kingsley face off. So it's really, I think that scene heightened the stress level, uh, which is what this, this writer is talking about, the sense of urgency. I think that that's really conveyed in Lupin's character. And then Lupin at the wedding scene is the one who Harry wants to go find Ginny. And Lupin throws, literally grabs him and throws him. Sure, it might be a little forceful than is in the book, but just like he was the one to hold Harry back from the veil in book five and movie five, he's the one who throws Harry into the trio so that they can disapparate to safety. So I it, loved that, by the way. It, I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. What How was he yells at Harry. The muted scene. Yeah, so I, I just think, uh, you know, it may take a further viewing or, or just a different aspect, you know, a, a different way of looking at it that, that Lupin really does show and push Harry into solitude just in a different way and yeah no 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 and I completely agree with you Eric and and to be honest I'm kind of glad they didn't put the Lupin scene where he where he quote unquote well, slaps Harry a great character moment for, it's, but for, I don't for like it I like I, I don't like knowing that part of Lupin yeah I don't mean I, 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 I felt really uneasy when I read that in the book yeah. So, um, but I do agree that I, I think that that would have been a very, a very important scene as far as urgency and just for the, just for Lupin and Tonks's announcement of the child. I mean, they don't even say it at all. Well, they're about to. Well, there's a quick reference. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. About yeah. Wait till you hear the news. Yeah, you're supposed to know I'm pregnant. Next email comes from Alex22 of Rhode Island. He or she writes, Hey there, love the show. Smiley face. Wish I could say the same about the movie. (laughs) Although I have several concerns with the adaptation of part one, my main concern is where the heck was the invisibility cloak? In the book, they use the cloak just about everywhere they go 
because they are hiding. Now I realize that maybe it is hard to portray transparency, but come on now. The fact that Harry has had one of the Hallows in his possession is a huge part in tying the story together. What do you think? Oh, oh, okay, oh, oh, can I say something? Yes. Okay. In, I didn't get this the first time I saw the movie, but the second, third, and fourth time when I saw it, I did see, when they're at Xenophilius Lovegood's house, when they're, when he's discussing the Deathly Hallows and he talks about the invisibility cloak, there's an obvious huge light bulb that goes on in Hermione's head when she goes, an invisibility cloak. And she looks at Harry. Did you guys catch that? No. I didn't think it was a light bulb moment. She looks at him though. There seems to be some kind of, there seem to be the early threads of like a dawning realization, but it seems then, and it seems to me like it's going to play a part in part two, obviously with, I mean, Harry has two of the Hallows in his possession at this point. The only one he doesn't have is the one that Voldemort has, very obviously, at the end of part one. So there's bound to be a moment in part two. I'm kind of glad that they didn't realize it in part one. Hey, we already have most of the the stuff we need because i feel like that's a a kind of not not a plot hole in the in the books but it's convenient and i don't want anything about harry defeating the dark lord this villain of the series to be convenient that he happens to have half of what he needs out of luck and not out of skill so i'm not saying they're going to change it in part two but i'm glad that that part one is untouched by that feeling of hey we don't need to work for this um, because part one, right. I don't think it would have worked because part one is made is largely about desperation. W- were they under the invisibility cloak in Godric's Hollow, or mm, did they no, have they didn't holy use juice anything? They didn't use either. Yeah. No, no, they didn't use anything in the, in book, the they movie. Used but the invisibility I could have sworn cloak. they used. Yeah, they used both polyjuice juice and invisibility cloak. They used the. See, that's see. Okay, because that that's what I, I was wondering. Was that like a big? F you to J.K. Rowling? No, no. Because because, because Bethilda, look, here's what I took it as. Because Bethilda still knows that they're Harry and Hermione because they're standing in front of James and Lily's grave. So they're under, they're, they're definitely under Polyjuice, I think. According to the comments that I read on MuggleNet said that they were in Polyjuice in the book. Yeah, that, they were under yeah, Polyjuice. Yeah. And in the film, Hermione says, I still think we could use Polyjuice Potion. And then Harry says, I don't want to come to my parents' graveyard as somebody that, that else. That was a great line, though, in the film. And, oh, I loved it. But I was like, ooh, ouch. But I don't think it's an F you to Jake Carr. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, Bethilda still knew who it was. And Bethilda and Harry could both speak tar- parcel tongue. And so it didn't make any sense for them to cast, to dis- disguise them again. They, they're disguised quite a bit. And they, they'll be disguised again as Bellatrix in part two. So... I feel like the disguises were, you know, yet another one would have been a little uh, unnecessary. Well, doesn't it also sense the presence of the Horcrux? I'm sorry? It senses the presence of the Horcrux. I mean, Nagini is a Horcrux, and, and so is the locket around Harry's neck. You see that yeah. in, once they're in the actual house, but it's also possible that that could be part of the reason of what drew Bathilda out to the graveyard. Well, Harry's a Horcrux too. Well, well could, there could you we go make the argument well. that she's drunk? <laughs> so double Horcrux. There were three in one spot. Triple rainbow. Next email comes from Casey26, again of the USA. These people who just want to give us their countries, not their uh, states. Whatever. Um, I just listened to episode 214 and I agree with Eric and Andrew. I thought the movie was great. I can't wait to see it again. I uh, just thought I would point out an inaccuracy. You mentioned the short scene on the Hogwarts, Hogwarts Express where Cormac McClagan has a funny one-liner, and then I remembered that he ha- he was a year ahead of the trio and should be out of Hogwarts by now. It makes me wonder if other graduated students will be trapezing around the castle during the battle scene. 
Anyways, love the show. Thanks. Actually, it's traipsing. Traipsing. It's traipsing. Well, it could uh, be either because it's misspelled. But but right. <laughs> Trapezing. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's a battle. There could be gymnasts. Yeah. On that comment, they there are graduated students in Hogwarts who show up during the, the final battle. battle because they show up to show their loyalty to right. Harry and the cause. So yes, there are older students. But the fact that Cormac is on the train is a book to movie. Error or difference, I should say. Right. Because yes. he's in his seventh year in Half-Blood Prince, so that wouldn't make sense. Uh, but the <laughs> but there are older students I, at Hogwarts. Yeah. I mean, it was a funny comic relief sort of moment, uh, and it was totally unexpected. I'm not sure if we even knew he was cast for this film. Again, two seconds long, tops. Next email comes from Josh Age Harrow. I think he... That's his last name. From the United Kingdom. I completely agree with Mike and Richard. This movie had so many relevant parts missing. The characters were very underdeveloped in the previous movies, causing this movie to not have a good enough content. I would rate this movie maybe 6 out of 10. Ow! Wow! Yeah, Whoa. Let, let's, let's talk, let me take this moment to talk about pacing, okay? Things left out. This movie doesn't have good content. I completely disagree that this movie uh, cannot be rated or judged separately from either the past movies based exactly. on Thank you, or, or anything like that. And, and one of the reasons is especially, again, while seeing it again last night, while seeing it for the second time, or third time, actually, um, I just noticed when they're in the woods, first of all, there was no sense of urgency in the book when they're in the woods. Let's get that right out there, right out there. There was no urgency. Well, you didn't like, let's let's throw it out there. You didn't like the book, and you actually liked the film. It's my favorite film. But you hated the book. Well, hate might be a strong word, but you didn't like the book. I I, di- I didn't. Yeah, I didn't like the book. So that's interesting. Hmm. It, it is hmm. interesting to I me, but I think I think okay. So when they're in the woods with the movie, there's always something going on. It might be subtle. It might be slow to some people, but I don't understand when people say the forest dragged because in the book it dragged, but also in the film there's always something going on. Either if it's a character uh, analysis, either it's Ron slowly growing disenchanted, it's Harry finding out about the snitch, it's Ron listening to the radio, it's Harry and Hermione dancing. There's always something going on until the moment that they get snatched, and I think. You know, it just, it just, it depends on how into the movie you are. You have to listen to everything. You have to see everything and, and just immerse yourself in the world. And if you do that, the film doesn't seem long. It doesn't seem like it drags. It doesn't seem, right. although the comments we've got have said that people really did like the movie, but then they felt a disconnect growing after the wedding scene. I didn't feel that disconnect, so I was able to kind of coast through the rest of the film. Well, when they say disconnect, what do they mean? Because technically they are supposed to be disconnected. Well, let's ask Micah and Richard who felt that this, the forest scenes dragged and, and yet loved the beginning of the movie. Well, I mean, I'll say what I said on the last episode. and yeah, I know you said you have to be fair and, and you have to look at this movie by itself and not really you know, make it a larger part of, of a series. But I do think there were things that, that were left out previously that, that caused this particular part of the movie maybe drag isn't the right word but it, 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 for me it kind of it did move a little bit slow but you know Matt made the point earlier which was um uh you know a good point is that this is supposed to be months and months and months you know when, when yeah. they go to Godric's Hollow it's Christmas time so it, you you've moved all the way from the wedding which takes place in the summer to Christmas so you know it, I I think that 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 is a good point. You know, the, the the time you're supposed to feel the time that's that's ta- that's ticking by here, and maybe that's what I didn't look at See, in the last episode. Well, I'll disagree with that though, because of one thing David Yates said at I think the junket. He said that in the film, 
they narrowed it down to a few days of traveling for a few days. Um, whereas, of course, in the book, as he noted, it's months. I think, so I think, well, I actually, it, no, 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 you're, you're incorrect there, Andrew. He said they narr- that you, they only see a, f- you only see a few days in the film. You don't necessarily had only three days because Harry's hair doesn't grow that fast. And it's fast. still, she gave yeah, there is, there is the hair growing subplot, but, and it is also Christmas Eve when they arrive at Godric's Hollow because they're singing carols and Hermione points that out. But, uh, I was confused when you when I read that junket report too, Andrew. But I think it's what he means is what Matt said was that he, you see a few days in the life as opposed to seeing weeks, and mm, so they maybe. had to condense it like yeah. that. I don't know the way he was talking. They were trying to okay, yeah, the haircut, fine, but it's never established that like the wedding happens in the summertime. I mean, the only hint at that would be that Ginny's not in school and the, his birthday. Uh, Hermione says they were going to give him a cake after the wedding. Right, right but I mean, July. doesn't in England? I mean, doesn't it snow in like August? So I mean, no, they were just guessing. They were just guessing it was Christmas Eve. It wasn't actually, you know, we didn't get confirmation. I okay. At, at this point, I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> By the way, Harry, it's July. Oh, Hermione, isn't it December? Uh, okay, but maybe you're right. Okay, so maybe David Yates, what he meant was, they were just they they only showed a few days. Fine, that's fine. They had to. They couldn't show them <laughs> thirty days, no, sixty days. <laughs> then I would, I would definitely agree that the pacing was very slow. Okay. Next email comes from Siona, sixteen Cherry Hill from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. That Dear MuggleCast, that is near me. Dear MuggleCast, where has Richard been? My slash MuggleCast's whole life. His debut on Muggle. Who put these emails in, by the way? <laughs> they're they're all in favor of Mike and Richard. His debut on MuggleCast was amazing, except for those who disagreed with his opinions, which were so funny. I think this episode deserves to be on the wall of fame. The combination of Eric's optimism and reasoning, Mike is in endless, Mike is in Richard's endless complaints, and Andrew's trying to be the middleman. So enjoyable. I think that's the first time I've ever listened to an episode twice in one day, or maybe I'm just insane. Anywho, thanks so much for coming out. Oh, with the DH episode so soon and so perfect. Uh, lots of love, good Siona. I like how she said, "I tried to be the middleman." Not that, not that I accomplished this. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's, I think she was just reading the show notes. <laughs> I think in the show notes it says, "Eric has optimism and reasoning. Micah and Richard have endless complaints. Andrew tries to be the middleman." <laughs> well, um. Thank you for that. Um, so I guess, Micah, you put that in there just because you... Well, the thing was, a lot of the, the comments that we had in here beforehand were, you know, negative against... I was trying to balance things out, but I don't know where those comments went. We have one comment from MuggleNet.com that we wanted to put in because uh, Eric thinks it brings up a good point. Eric, would you like to read it from Pantera? Sure, I'll read it. Okay. Um, I definitely echo... Some of what has already been said. Oh, sorry. This is from Pantera 2012. Uh, she writes, I definitely echo some of what has already been said. During the podcast, I found myself on Eric's side much more than the side of Andrew, Micah, and Richard. There we go. Some difference. Uh, she says, number one, actually, this is, no, she says, or they say, I believe that Deathly Hallows' storyline was explained in good enough detail that non-book readers could have understood what was going on. I mean, we saw the necklace Xenophilius was wearing. We saw the symbol on the gravestone in Godric's Hollow. We saw it in the copy of Life and Lies that Hermione had. And we watched slash heard a freaking short story about the Hallows from Tales of Beetle the Bard. And Xenophilius went step by step and drew out the symbol by hand on a piece of paper. What else can you ask for? I saw the 
movie with my sister, who has not read the books, and on the way home, I asked her why Voldemort stole the Elder Wand from Dumbledore. She said that it was because it was one of the Deathly Hallows. Like someone has already said, five to ten-year-old kids are not the only people who go to see these films. So I take it that her sister was a young kid who understood this. She says, actually, DH Part 1 had moments that were heavy enough that I think would make some parents question if they should let their seven-year-old see the movie. Scenes like Ron getting splinched, but Thilda Nagini, definitely Hermione's torture scene. That was pretty darn terrifying, etc. Um, so that was interesting. She said her young kid knew that... Yeah, her sister. Her sister knew that uh, Voldemort wanted the, the Elder Wand, so... Yeah, I think they made. I I I think they made it clear. Oh yeah, that was completely obvious. I mean, and then the big cliffhanger: Voldemort gets the Elder Wand, and you you see him holding, and he's smiling, and it's a it's. I think it's a pretty powerful moment. Um, yeah, I th- I think that the the parts with say Gregorovich and then with Grindelwald will probably be explained in part two, because they they kind of left that open ended. They did. And they go by in a flash, and mm-hmm. there's just a lot of loud, like, banging noises, because you're, sor- you're so- sort of supposed to get the impression that it's taking place in Harry's head. I mean, people who have read the books know that, but I don't know if it's as clear if you haven't read the books. I don't know if you know it's happening in Harry's head. It's kind of established, but it goes by so quick. Well, it's happening in the real world. I know that, but... Right. but, it's, but it's all through, but, like, his right, vision. Right, it's still Harry seeing this in his head yeah because you know he's because he's a horcrux right i do think though that you um i don't know who said this but i in the last episode but i do think that this was all just a tease and then it'll be explained further when they talk about the life and lives of alvis dumbledore in part two because they would i mean they will talk about it let's hope so and regardless if it's if it's at Hogsmeade with Aberforth or just conversation at shell cottage or some point it will be discussed well because Micah, didn't we report a while ago that Dumbledore's family was cast? No, I, I think it's the opposite. I don't think they and were cast. We were wondering why they weren't. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, that's, so. yeah they, we were wondering why they hadn't been cast. And I guess with that scene that they had at the wedding with uh, Aunt Muriel and uh, Elphias, Elphias Doge, they were they were just trying to put it in place right there, where they mentioned his father, they mentioned his brother, and what happened to... Um, What's her name? Ken, uh, Ariana, right? Yeah. yeah. And and actually, somebody pointed out that if if you look closely at Dumbledore's file in in the Ministry, you know, as Harry yeah. is flipping through in Umbridge's office, it says like it lists his mother and his siblings' names. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I it- didn't I didn't see that, but they I guess that was another kind of tip to the towards the uh, towards the fans to include that information. Yeah, it says his father's name is Percival. All right. Uh, also, have another one more comment that came in from Professor Lily on the uh, MuggleNet.com comments. She said, "I'm assuming it's a she." Uh, I've been listening to MuggleCast since episode one, reading the book since '99, and watching the movie since 2001. I was really looking forward to your review episode because they've usually been excellent, pointing out hits and misses in the films in a good and appropriate way. So I was really shocked at the level of negativity in this episode. In a way far different from the reactions of three out of the four of you, this is the first time I've ever left a Harry Potter film and said, wow, this one they got right. Micah, you have always been one of my favorites, but I think you just missed this one. I don't think you've ever forgiven the filmmakers for cutting out the other minister, which was a delightful scene of exposition in the book, 
but would never have worked as well on the film. And Richard, sorry mate, while I actually agree with your comment about Bill Nye, I thought the tone of your critique was unnecessarily mean-spirited and harsh. I thought the acting of the trio, all of them, was spot on. The extended period in the forest gave all three actors a time to shine and to show the transition that Harry, Ron, and Hermione have made from teenagers to the young adults their scary world has forced them to become. Your comments about Dan Radcliffe were not only off-base, they were gratuitously cruel. Yes, I have my quibbles. Why no memorial to the Potters and Godric's Hollow, either in the square or at the house, for example. So easy to do and so touching. But that's what they are, quibbles. The tone of loneliness and bleakness of the camping scenes was perfect. The constant reading of the list of the missing gave a haunting view of the threat in the world outside. The stopping of the train showed the intense hunt for Harry, and Neville's sullen defiant response, far from being weak, gave a foreshadowing of the resistance leader he will become. I'm really struck by the dichotomy between your reactions and the reactions of the overwhelming majority of the fandom who absolutely love this film, and called it the film they've been waiting for. I wonder where that is coming from. As for Mike's consistently expressed concern that non-fans would not get this movie, I'm sure they don't get the nuance we do. But every, quote, Harry Potter version I know, movie viewers, not book readers, got it. I'm sorry to say that in this review episode, I don't think the three of you did. Richard, do you have any sort of rebuttal without tearing apart this lovely listener? Uh, I actually saw this comment, uh, and I, I put it in earlier. Uh, I thought it was really well thought I replied to some of my comments from, from last week's episode. Um, if you look at, if, okay, if you look back earlier in the series, you could probably argue that the trio's acting was a bit rough. You know, they're all kids after all, you're all young. Um, I don't think you can really expect otherwise. And they did a fantastic job given the amount of experience that they actually had. But, where I think Emma and Rupert have both matured as actors and embraced the developments and changes in their characters, I'm not convinced Daniel Radcliffe has, at least not to the same extent as the others. I think his acting can still be a bit wooden, a bit dry. I mean, not all the time, but at times. And especially at those moments when he really has to convey emotion. I think that's when he struggles. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't dislike the guy, and I think there are some parts when he is very good. For in Half-Blood Prince, for example, when he had, when he had taken the Felix Felicis potion, I thought that was some of his best acting of the entire series. But, I mean, going back to Deathly Hallows, there was that scene when he was dancing with Hermione, and I was just, ah, oh, I was just cringing so much. It was awkward, and it was clumsy. But, hey, well, then again, perhaps that was intended. Well, but if you, that, that, that tense scene when they're dancing, I mean, the beauty of it is that Dan and Harry Potter are not good dancers. And, uh, it's funny, Dan Radcliffe actually said that, that, that was the coolest Harry Potter's ever been. That moment, because of that, because of that song, which by the way is called Oh Children by Nick, Nick Cave. Cave. There's we, someone uh, that posted specifically about it. Right, we made a post about it because I figured a lot of people were wondering what song that was. It has a good backstory to it too, but, um, so I think it's interesting because Richard did say that, that, you know, he felt Emma Watson carried the trio, and I think, you know, the fact that he points out the dancing scene as being an example of his disagreement with Dan, I don't think it's the best scene to point out to say, to express yourself, because it is this happy, joyous moment where he's not really supposed to be acting as, a, as a much to feeling, as opposed to feeling, you know, Harry's feeling in that moment, and that's that's what that scene is about. But I think it just signals a larger disconnect between you and Dan, which is what you're saying there is, that you just don't feel that he hits the character and that you can't see him as Harry Potter. And I understand that. You know what? I think another reason some people may have been bothered by Richard's 
comments is that it was his first episode and he just steps in and started <laughs> just starts crapping all over the movie. <laughs> so they've been they haven't they haven't gotten to know you, but in due time. Can I just so. respond to to two things that are in here? Uh, where yeah. she she was addressing me. I, I think that the other minister scene would have worked in Half Blood Prince. I'm just throwing that out there. She says she doesn't think that it would. I do think it would have. But uh, and, and the second thing, obviously, she mentioned the uh, the casual moviegoer, which I already addressed. So I'm not going to address that again. But um, yeah, I do think the other minister scene would probably have been a really good scene to include in Half Blood Prince. But um, obviously, we can't go back and make that change. Right. I mean, it's 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 really easy to go back into other films and say what would have worked, what would have made this movie a lot better if they added that. But I mean, it's 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 always a futile argument, especially at this point since it is the last film. So we can only hope that they actually get it. I really don't care if it doesn't make any sense because they didn't put it in the other movies. Because damn it, I read that book. I want to see it in this movie, regardless <laughs> if they introduced the two-way mirror in Order of the Phoenix or not. It, they put it in this movie. Thank God they did, because it would have been an atrocious film if they didn't have it at all and then try to make some two-bit excuse on how how Aberforth sent Dobby or something. It's just... Well, then they didn't explain it. Regardless if it they makes They didn't sense. explain it, though. But... Huh? but no, they didn't explain it, but, but but there's no point in us doing it now. No, yeah. they, they will. There's I no think they'll explain it in part two. They have to. What, about the two-way mirror? Yeah, they, they probably could, but the fact is is that they actually have it, and thank God well, they, they do. Well, they do explain it. Ab- Aberforth explains it in in the, the Hogshead when they when they get there. No, but I'm talking about in, po- in part oh. one. About where he got it from? About how an audience member wouldn't doesn't know. Why does why does Harry have a mirror with Dumbledore's Even those who've seen all the films and not read the books wouldn't know. Specifically. Well, yeah, but, but also, I mean... People who haven't read the books going into these movies know that they're not going to get some of the stuff because they haven't read well, the exactly. books. Well, yeah. exactly. It's like saying, who is this person in a prison that Voldemort is talking to that's laughing in his face? Right. Well, if I read the books, I right. probably would know. And shame on them for not reading the books in the first place. To wrap up the show today, we asked people who follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash mugglecast, what your favorite scene is. And we got lots of responses. Uh, this first one from Jessica. She says, my favorite scene was when they opened the locket. Nikki Smith wrote the dancing scene when Her- with Harry and Hermione. It was so intimate and showed what a great friendship the two have. I loved it. See, that's why I liked it. It was a great friendship. Yeah, me too. Oh, children. I like that song too. I that's exactly that a lot what it sounded like. <laughs> oh, children. <laughs> yeah, that is how it sounds. Yep, you're right. Because wow. there's a little like gospel choir sort of chorus thing going on. It was very nice. Um, Hope Burke wrote, my favorite scene in Deathly Hallows was probably the Three Brothers scene, but I loved it all. Favorite movie so far. Uh, M. Joy wrote, Favorite scene is at Malfoy Manor, when Voldy and his followers are seated around the long tables. Especially Voldy snapping uh, Lucius's wand, which I agree with. That was awesome. Ryan Duffy writes, The Harry and Hermione dance scene. Believe it or not, that's the only scene in any Harry Potter movie that ever made me cry. Did it make anyone else cry? No, I didn't cry for that. <laughs> or from pain? Not from joy, yeah, from pain and anguish. <laughs> Wait, he cried when they danced, but they didn't cry for Hedwig or Dobby's death? It was, what kind of a person did it? was a song. It was, it was a moving song. Meet the new host in MuggleCast, Matt. It's Richard Reed <laughs> from Scotland. <laughs> Jenny writes, my favorite scene is... The Hedwig death scene. It was so much sadder than it was in the books. I cried. John Finnegan writes, My favorite scene was definitely the Seven Potters escape. Hedwig's death 
death was much more noble than the book. The only good change. And we got lots of others. Thanks to everyone who, who at replied us. We do enjoy reading them all. Now, one of you mentioned my favorite scene. Which is what? Is, um, Hermione's, um, monologue in Forest Everdeen. Uh, when Ron returns? How is that not like everyone's... No, when she's sitting with, um, the book in her hand and talking about, like, how she and Harry should grow old together. Aww. Yeah, that was interesting. So that's it for part two of our part one review. Of course, we covered a lot of stuff. We'd love to get your feedback on this episode as well. So please do visit MuggleCast.com. Click on contact at the top and you'll see a handy feedback form where you can write into us. Also on MuggleCast.com, you'll find links to our Twitter, our Facebook, our iTunes page, and a whole lot more. Oh, but uh, speaking of uh, stuff related to the, to the, to the podcast, uh, we are looking for some more transcribers, probably about 20 more people um, who are interested in transcribing MuggleCast. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll make a post on MuggleCast.com of where you can send your, your application. But, um, yeah, we're, we're looking for some more people. And, and obviously, we don't say this enough. We do have a great group of people uh, that, you know, put together these transcripts for every single show. I think we're up to 209 now. Um, so we're pretty up to date with with the shows that have been released, but they do a tremendous job over there, and it, it's kind of a thankless position. So uh, we really do appreciate yeah, it. You are right. <laughs> Thank you, guys. And one final plug: Eric on Tuesday night he appeared on an internet radio show called After Buzz TV, and you can find it now. You can he 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 did a little review of the movie with the guys at After Buzz TV. And uh, you can find a link to his interview on the MuggleCast Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash MuggleCast. Or just search for AfterBuzz TV in iTunes. Yeah, they're on iTunes. Really interesting people. Like, they knew a lot about Potter, and they were talking. Obviously, they, they do recaps uh, in and out of, like, commercial breaks and things like that for television shows. And this was their first foray into movie discussion but they're they're awesome people like uh the host in particular was just really good at uh you know managing the other co-hosts i i think it's uh was he better or worse than me i didn't want to say (laughs) (laughs) listen and form your own conclusions andrew all right fair enough he's british so i think everything is tipped in his favor he's automatically better Yeah. yeah thanks everyone for listening it's been a lot of fun i'm andrew sims i'm eric skull i'm mike tannenbaum I'm Matt Britton. And I'm Richard Reed. And we'll see you next time for episode 216. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye, Richard. Bye. (laughs) Bye, Richard. Narcissa. Narcissa error-free episode. He says that about Narcissa. <laughs> oh, well, he's talking to Bellatrix in the movie. Yeah. but About Narcissa. We're, oh, well, she said you could have killed me. Bellatrix. So yeah, yeah, says, yeah, Bellatrix never, says yeah, you could have so killed me. Oh, talking. my bad. Oh, error-free. Cut me out. How many times okay. do you need to see it, Eric? Jesus. All right, all right, <laughs> fine. Go on, Matt. Okay.